Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. Coming up on today's program, Prevent Plant Acres will not be part of the market facilitation program. It's been thought that maybe they would make a change and let those acres in, but it looks like they will not. We're going to talk about the aid package with John Newton, chief economist with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Also today, a look at the results of the latest uh, polling in the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. We'll talk with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer. And the ongoing uh, work on what milk can be uh, used in the school lunch program. And we're going to talk with Paul Blyberg, Vice President, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation, about some legislation proposed on that. But first, on the 75th anniversary of D-Day, I want to just take a moment to uh, say how much we need to not take this for granted, for us to remember, to say thank made the commitment uh, to ensure our freedom and wow 75 years ago I tell you I've been I've been very blessed very fortunate to be able to travel to a lot of places but the one place that stands up maybe more than any other that I've been to is when I many years ago visited Normandy and the, many of the D-Day beaches and especially Omaha Beach I remember standing there and looking down on that open beach and you you can stand Right up there by where uh, where the uh, uh, the Germans were and the the firing down on that beach and you look down there and it's so open and you wonder how did anyone survive and the courage it took to to storm that beach and to make it up that cliff and and when you stand up on that uh, hill and especially as you walk through the the cemetery there it is just so moving and uh, you just feel uh, it's it's just it's hard to describe the feeling that you have there, and you you can just sense something very special took place there, something very historic, and uh, we remember those who uh, who made that sacrifice and and served us so well uh, in that invasion 75 years ago. It's uh, something I hope we never ever forget in this country, and uh, we pay honor to them today. All right, uh, let's uh, let's take a look at the news now. Todd Neely with DTN joins us. Todd, thanks for being with us. Hey, Mike, it's good to be here. Um, well, a lot of things I want to touch on. Uh, one, I mentioned this earlier, uh, the unplanted acres, of which there are so many this year, looks like they will not be part of the market facilitation program. Yeah, you know, that's a really tough thing. Uh, we're still trying to get a handle on the number of, uh, of unplanted acres. Um, I've seen estimates as high as 10 million and, and beyond. Um, and when you look at the scope of this, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very large chunk of the, of the crop that, that won't be planted. And so it really is a bit of a mystery um, as to why that wasn't included uh, in the market facilitation program. Hopefully we'll... Uh, We'll learn more about that and understand it a little bit better. But on the other hand, hopefully we won't have to deal with another season like this either. Yeah. Meanwhile, the prevent plant dates have passed now. And uh, so farmers making those decisions, uh, you know, are they going to go ahead and in some cases keep trying to plant? Some are certainly, but others have no choice. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, and that's the thing. I think, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of people talking about this, obviously, and I think the one thing uh, the one thing I thought was interesting yesterday, I saw a comment on Twitter from a producer who said that, uh, you know, he's getting past, and he's obviously past the planning date for crop insurance, uh, and he, in his case, decided that he's probably going to go ahead and plant and see what happens. And unfortunately, you know, as you get past those planning dates on crop insurance, um, you lose about 1% coverage every day. Uh, so... It's really, uh, it's really going to be an interesting time. You know, I think we'll be able to look back on this time and learn a lot about uh, the various programs, crop insurance, a lot of things. And maybe uh, at some point we'll go forward and, and say that maybe there's some things that need changed or adjusted. Uh, so as if we ever get into a situation like this again, that we can be better prepared. But um, it's really going to be, uh, it's going to be a tough time. But I think. You know, on the other hand, I think there are a lot of producers out there who are getting a crop planted. And, you know, you think about the corn price going up recently, and, you know, that provides some hope for guys who, and gals who can get in the field and, and have got a crop going. So I guess there's two sides of this. You know, this has been such an unusual spring, but it's also going to lead to an unusual year. I mean, you look around, you see fields that are still underwater. You look at the countryside, you drive through, and fields that are normally planted, a lot of them still have just weeds growing up in them, and a lot of those acres are not going to be planted. So everything's going to look different all year. The crops that are planted are so much further behind. It's going to be a race to see if they you know, can reach maturity this year. Harvesting, obviously, is going to be later. It's just going to be a different year, not just a different spring. No, absolutely. You know, when you... When you're planting this late, I mean, this is a, this is territory that we really haven't seen much of, and so uh, you kind of don't know what to expect in some ways. Um, but I suspect, you know, we've seen it time and again. Uh, producers are very agile and able to adjust and and do the things they need to do to get a crop. But uh, yeah, this is this is as far as we've been tested, and um, you know, I think uh, as we go forward, we really need to to look, like I said, look at some of these programs and different things that. Uh, the farmers fall back on um, and see if they're adequate. Um, this is a time, I guess, we're learning those those uh, questions. You know, something we haven't talked too much about. I mean, there's tremendous weed pressures out there. Farmers have struggled to be able mm-hmm. to get out and spray. Uh, I've got a feeling we're going to be talking a lot more about those dicamba deadlines this <laughs> year and, and the restrictions, you know, on, on, the, on the use of it. Uh, I've already heard one farmer talking about that. What happens when that deadline comes and they still need to get out there and use it? Uh, there'll be some decisions to be made there, too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and Mike, we're never a shortage for weeds, but you're right. This year in particular is going to be one of those years that um, I think we're going to see quite a bit more weed pressure, uh, especially in those areas that, like you said, where, you know, we've got standing water, we've got, you know, different things going on. And uh, I guess we just have to kind of, kind of play this thing by ear but you know i i, I do hope that as we, as we go on that that a lot of people are going to learn from this it's not a lesson that anybody wants to, to take but um hopefully at some point we're we're going to look it back on this and and learn a lot from it and i think um i think a lot of people are eager to do that and of course uh we also wait for trade news and we know that there are some important mm-hmm. meetings going on between u.s and mexico uh, this week to see if they can come up with some uh, agreement, some way to deal with the immigration issue that will avoid the tariffs, new tariffs going on next week. Yeah, you know, and Mike, I think the one good thing I saw yesterday, um, you know, Mexico has been talking about retaliation, obviously, 
Um, and to this point, it appears that they're going to exclude corn as part of that retaliation. So that's obviously a good thing. Um, but yeah, when you when you look at the scope of the pressures in agriculture right now, um, it really is unprecedented. And I think, uh, you know, hopefully we get some good trade news here before long. I think that will go a long way. We need it for sure. All right, Todd, thanks for being with us. All right, thank you, Mike. DTN reporter Todd Neely. Up next, John Newton, chief economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, joining us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, let's talk with one Illinois farmer between the Quad Cities and Peoria. David Erickson joins us. David, thanks for being with us. How much do you have done? Um, I'm about uh, 95% plus on corn, but feel fortunate there, and, and most of that corn is up, but no soybeans planted. For the most part, Mike, we've not gotten big rains, although last night, depending on where you're at here in Knox County in Illinois, we're uh, you know, somewhere between, uh, I'd say, 1.6 and 2.5 inches. Our forecast is for a little bit drier weather, and in today's lingo, that means uh, scattered showers of uh, you know somewhere between two-tenths and half an inch. So we're as wet now as we've been at any time this spring, and uh, we're probably looking at a week's worth of drying uh, to get back into the fields, I would guess. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, Immigration Reform, Reducing Regulation, as well as Infrastructure and Health Care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. Hi, I'm Greg Peterson of the Peterson Farm Brothers. If you've seen our videos, you know we're proud to be farmers. Farming can be dangerous. Never assume location or depth of underground utilities or pipelines. Before you start any work on your farm, call 811 or visit clickbeforeyoudig.com to have underground lines located. It only takes a minute and can save your life. Never assume the location or depth of underground lines. Always call 811 or visit clickbeforeyoudig.com before you start work. A message from the Pipeline Operators for Ag Safety Campaign. 180 over 111 and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92 and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100 and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it, or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medicine. 
You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, there's been a lot of speculation. Would USDA change rules and allow prevent plant acres to be part of the market facilitation program. A lot of folks had called for that, but it looks like now, according to USDA's top lawyers, they are confirming that unplanted crop acreage will actually be ineligible for those trade. Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. John, you were one of those calling for Prevent Plant Acres to be part of the package, but uh, what are your thoughts now that we know that they're not going to be? Well, I think what we've heard is that there are some legal hurdles uh, with using the, the, the trade aid funds, the CCC, to pay for, for commodities that, that aren't marketed. Uh, I still believe that, that the Prevent Plant benefit that farmers are going to get this year is, is depressed uh, due to the trade war and thought that the MFP payment would be a much uh, cleaner way to, to address the, the depressed uh, prevent plant benefit. But that said, I think attention now shifts to the disaster package uh, to see how exactly that's going to address uh, all the prevent plant planted acres we're likely to see this year. So, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk about how confusing this is and uh, how much uh, unknown there is still about this uh, program and has really left farmers in a, in a tough spot dealing already with a lot with planning decisions uh, with their uh, prevent plant dates uh, passing now as of yesterday I think they're all passed now so uh, there's just been so much uncertainty for everyone. Well I think this is the the first time uh, in history that that I can think of that uh, we've had two programs be announced, and one that uh, encourages planting uh, through the, the trade assistance package and one that, that quite frankly, discourages planting uh, through the disaster package and an enhancement to the prevent plant. So you're right. There's a lot of uncertainty uh, out there. The rumors uh, that prevent plant could pay as much as 90% uh, of the revenue guarantee certainly has a lot of folks looking at that as an option. Uh, and I think when you read the disaster language, it says, you know, 70 to 90 percent uh, of the value of the crop could be covered. And so people are looking at that and thinking about how prevent plant uh, could potentially be changed. Okay, so Congress has passed the disaster package and we're waiting for the president to sign it. Kind of break that down. What do we what do we know about it? What's in there that we should be aware of? Well, the, the disaster package, a little more than, than $5.2 billion uh, for agriculture-related programs. $3 billion of that is going to be uh, in farm disaster assistance. And so I think that's where the monies are going to come to help uh, crops that have been damaged uh, by flooding. So think about things that were uh, in storage there across Nebraska, uh, Missouri, uh, Iowa, when we had the flooding uh, earlier in March. Uh, it's also that pot of money needs to cover the prevent plant benefits, uh, needs to cover, you know, think about pecan growers in, in the southeast that, that saw their orchards devastated. So that's where all the assistance, uh, the disaster assistance is going to come for those programs, your WIP-style programs. Uh, then there's also about $600 million, uh, in nutrition assistance for Puerto Rico. Uh, there's $500 million, uh, or so across three different types of conservation programs, uh, emergency conservation, emergency forest restoration, and emergency watershed. 
and flood prevention programs. But again, in aggregate, a little over $5.2 billion in farm-related disaster assistance. Which is a lot of money, but it's going to get spread pretty thin when you you just described all the things it's going to go for and the need that's out there, and that's not even covering everything, really, because so much more has happened. Well, I think one of the things that that, that probably happened uh, is that, you know, this disaster package, we've been trying to get it across the finish line for, for quite a while now, and, and what happened is uh, the latest iteration of the disaster package that we now have was modified to include uh, prevent plant, and so you're right that it could potentially be uh, spread pretty thin. I don't want to get ahead of the department. We haven't seen the implementation rules or how they're going to do things, uh, but but it's you know certainly with all the different disasters that we've experienced uh, across the country the last year, from hurricanes to volcanoes, wildfires, and flooding, uh, certainly uh, there's a lot of people that need some help. We're talking with John Newton, chief economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. John, this is going to be a year really like no other. Um, what are your thoughts on a year where you have so many unplanted acres? Uh, I mean, there, the stories we're going to be talking about through the course of the year, what this has meant, when you have that many unplanted acres, that means a lot of uh, unplanted seed, what it's going to do, you know, what that means for seed companies. I mean, there, there are so many layers to this that we'll be exploring throughout the course of this year. I think this is going to be one of those uh, years that we're going to look back on, uh, Mike, similar to the way we look back on, on 2012. Uh, the, the implications are, are going to be widespread uh, when you have the, the amount of prevent plant uh, likely to be record high, uh, I believe, for corn, uh, maybe even a really high value on the soybean side, too. We still have to watch that pace of planting. Uh, but I think I think this is the, the biggest weather event in the Corn Belt we've seen since 2012. So we'll be picking up the pieces for quite a while. And, you know, we often, whenever we're in a downtime, and we are now for the ag economy, we often refer back to the 80s. How's it similar? How's it different than the 80s? And we know there are differences. And fortunately, you know, land values have held. Uh, we don't have the interest, high interest rates we had in the 80s. But in some ways, when you look at all the negative things hitting agriculture, uh, I know you've talked about this. How does this compare to the 80s, in your opinion? Well, we're, you're right. We're not, we're not in the 80s. A lot of farm equity indicators suggest we're, we're far from the 1980s, but, but this is as close as, as we've been uh, in terms of some of the equity uh, indicators we look at. The debt-to-asset ratio is at a 20-year high, uh, nearly 14%. That could accelerate if, if asset values uh, fall even more, uh, given that the debt levels we have across agriculture are, are record high. Uh, they're not record high when you adjust for inflation, but $430 billion and farm debt's quite a, quite a lot. Uh, you look at where the bankruptcy, uh, it's not record high. It's about 10% of what it was in the 80s, but it's moving in the wrong direction. Uh, so I think you know it, it's a very, very challenging time. Uh, I think the, the federal FDIC uh, numbers that were released, as well as the, the Beige book that was released yesterday, uh, all confirm that this is as close to the 80s as we've been in quite a while. You know, we look at, for those that are able to plant a crop, and hopefully... Uh, you know, it's a good rest of the year, and uh, even though yields probably be lower, at least have a crop to sell, perhaps at higher prices. And we know there's uh, grain in storage. But for those not growing a crop this year or maybe even had some lost uh, in the flooding, even though they'll get some help with the disaster aid, uh, it doesn't make anyone whole. And, you know, we're looking at a year for many uh, that needed to be a good year, and, you know, 
they're looking now for some help to minimize losses, not really make a profit. So that makes it a tough year. I think what we're going to need to do is is, is really see the details on how this disaster uh, aid is going to function. Get the details on how the the trade aid is going to function. We we don't know yet. Uh, you know, the, the administration said they'll make three payments. I think we asked them to go down to two to help farmers meet their immediate financial needs. Uh, but we don't know yet uh, what what the future holds for some of these programs. What they look like. How much money will ultimately be paid out. Uh, we don't know yet how much crop we're going to have in the ground. We don't know yet what those yields are going to be uh, and what our stock levels and ultimately the prices are going to be. This is as uncertain of an environment uh, I've ever had to project in terms of what what the implications are for the farm economy. And the uncertainty with the trade issues just compounds it. That's that's exactly right. I think you know, I think we took we took a big step forward when when the statement of administrative action on on USMCA went to the hill. Uh, but then shortly, you know, later that afternoon, the the announcement of a, a 5% tariff on all goods going into Mexico, coming in from Mexico beginning next week, escalating to as much as 25% by October, uh, is two steps backwards. Uh, and, and, and so you've seen uh, the impact of that in the commodity markets. I mean, think about this, Mike. The, the corn prices shot up a dollar due to the delayed plantings, but we've been eating away at those gains uh, due to the uncertainty around Mexico. Mexico's our number one market for corn. So, uh, again, we, we seem to make some progress and then shoot ourselves in the foot. Yeah, important talks going on there. Uh, and the president now talking about maybe more tariffs on China. Uh, you know, that that's something that I, I think folks have been aware of for, for a while now. And, and, and when you think about China, at this point, they're not really in our market uh, in a very big way. I, I think we'd like to see... Uh, those relationships restored. Uh, you know, if we can get these trade deals restored, and, and we'll be in a much better position uh, in 2020 uh, in terms of the farm economy. But the trade's so critically important for us. All right, so much uncertainty. All right, John, thank you for being with us, uh, giving us uh, your perspective. We appreciate it. I appreciate it. John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Coming up next, we're going to talk with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer. Take a look at the latest results of the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean, separate, cook, and chill. The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Let's talk about how to really cook. First, you can't tell it's done by how it looks. Use a food thermometer. Then, always stir, rotate the dish, and cover food when microwave. Where bacteria can survive. Fast cooking should still be safe cooking. And bring sauces, soups, and gravies to a rolling boil when reheating. Even for the most experienced cooks, the improper heating and preparation of food means bacteria can survive. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. Clean, separate, cook, and chill. For more information,
information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Grain and oil seed sector mixed on this Thursday session. Some minus signs in corn and soybean futures. Wheat futures trending into positive territory. President Trump saying Thursday that progress was being made in talks between Mexican and U.S. officials. But he said Mexico must step up to the plate if it wants to head off tariffs planned for next week. Mexican police detained some 450 migrants on Wednesday as they walked north near the border with Guatemala. According to this week's export sales report from USDA, China bought 17,400 metric tons of U.S. pork in the past week, the third straight week of Chinese pork purchases. Corn export sales falling short of expectations. Sales for 2018-19, a net reduction of 8,800 metric tons. Corn, an hour into the day, July, down three-quarters of a cent at 414. December, down a penny and a half at 432. July soybeans down three and three quarters at 866. November, 892 and three quarters, down four and a half. Chicago wheat July up seven and a half at 498 and a quarter. Kansas City wheat a penny higher, four and a fraction better in Minneapolis. September new crop at 561 and a half, up four and a half cents. Live cattle futures at the Merck nearby June up 20 cents at 108.05. Back months a dime to 17 cents higher. Feeder cattle August down 60 cents at 138.85. Lean hog futures July down 42 at 85.85 per hundred weight. Wall Street, the Dow up 12, NASDAQ down 11, S&P flat. July crude oil in New York up 11 cents. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking... Call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. The Ag Economy Barometer is an ag producer sentiment measure which is based on a nationwide mid-month survey of 400 U.S. ag producers. Well, as you would expect, uh, it dropped again in May. To give us a look at the latest results of the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer, we bring in Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer. Michael, thank you for joining us. Uh, What's your biggest takeaways from uh, this latest survey? Well, the biggest 
takeaway is, is it's down again, and, and the index now is the lowest it's been since before the, the 2016 election. And so it's the lowest it's been since October uh, 2016. And when we take a look at everything that's happening all at once here, I, I, I guess we're not surprised at the, the results when you look at uh, how difficult it is to plant either late or not plant at all, all the trade concerns and worries. I mean, everything seems to be happening negatively at once on agriculture. Yeah, that's certainly the case. And I think the two biggest things you hit on there, uh, the fact we've had all this wet planting, it it certainly uh, caused some concerns about what yields are going to be in 2019. Uh, Prices have adjusted a little bit, but whether they've adjusted enough, uh, to make the returns look very good in 2019 is an is open question mark, that's for sure. And then also the trade dispute is certainly not helping soybean prices. Uh, you know, the, the trade dispute with China is certainly not helping soybean prices. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. But when we look at the index, there's two sub-indices to the, to the index. One is related to current conditions, and one is related to future expectations. And one of the things we've been noticing in the last two or three months is both of these are, are going down. Uh, the, it, when we ask a question related to, uh, would you say your farm operation today is financially better off, worse off, or about the same compared to a year ago, that's been consistently rather low uh, in terms of those that say they're better off uh, you know, right now compared to a year ago. Also, when they're looking at, uh, do you think the prospects in the next year are going to look better than they, than they are right now? That's been a fairly small percent. Then the prospects are going to be better. But what's a little bit alarming is when we, when we ask people about their settlement five years out, uh, the percentage that think that, that they're going to in the next five years has declined. Uh, and so that's related to the index of future expectations. And so that's a bit alarming. And so in addition to the fact we have some current conditions that are really dragging down the sediment, we also have these current conditions, along with all the uncertainty related to trade, uh, is really causing us to rethink what things might look like uh, in the next five years. Yeah, we often say you have to be an optimist to be a farmer, but uh, the, the survey is showing that optimism is waning. Yes, and, and, and I, I don't want to overstate the, the five-year sediment because the five-year sediment, there's still 40% approximately that think that agriculture is going to have relatively good times. But that 40% uh, not too long ago was over 50%. And so certainly that is, that is waning a bit. And a lot of that uh, long-term optimism is usually tied to farmland values. What are they saying and thinking about those? Yes, there's really two questions related to farmland. One is more of a what's going to happen in the next year, and there's, 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 there's more people thinking that in the next year that we're going to see some weakness in farmland values. That's no big surprise because as the net return prospects sour, uh, we'd expect that to, to negatively uh, impact land values and, and perhaps cash rent. So we haven't uh, asked a question specifically about cash rent for a few months. But, uh, but one of the things that's concerning, again, is when you look at five years out, uh, there's people also expecting to see some declines uh, in the, over the next five years. And that would be a fairly unusual situation uh, to see land values drop uh, over that long a period because we we're, we're, coming out of, we're coming out of some years where land values have declined slightly. And to see five more years, even if those declines are relatively small, uh, would be a bit unusual uh, but the percentage that think that land we're going to see some weakness over the next five years has increased recently. And that's consistent as well with what I was talking about in terms of sediment. 
uh, if you don't think agriculture is going to have good times in the next five years, you're probably thinking that uh, that's going to that's going to impact land values, and we're going to see uh, continued weakness in land values. We're talking with Purdue ag economist Michael Langemeyer. Uh, when we look historically at downturns in the ag economy, um, where are we historically this downturn, Michael? Well, I, I I was I was hoping, and like everybody else was hoping. Uh, that last year we turn out uh, like we thought it was going to be, but but having said that, 2018 we had relatively strong yields. That certainly that certainly helped. Uh, but but 2019 certainly not a recovery year. Nor do we nor does it look like uh, 2020 uh, is going to be re- recovery year. And so I, I think we're just looking at some very weak uh, net returns for at least another year or two. Now we look at trade and talk about these trade issues and say. If we get this worked out with China, if we get USMCA, I mean, I think there's a feeling that everything's just going to get better if those things are done. But even if they are done, that takes time, too, right? Uh, I mean, the recovery doesn't happen overnight. Yes, that's definitely the case. And and, uh, and one of the things that we look at, it, what economists look at, uh, is can we get this done in time uh, to, to be positive for exports next fall? You know, as the new crop comes on, uh, here we're talking primarily soybeans, are we going to have a trade agreement in place so that we can start shipping more soybeans uh, to China again? And, and so that, that's a real open uh, question mark, but that's not going to happen overnight. You know, even if we had a, had a, has a resolution very, fairly quickly, uh, it, it takes a while for those relationships to get back to normal, and so, and so that, there's certainly a lag there. Uh, we have asked a couple questions related to trade uh, in, in recent months, and, and one of those is related uh, to do you expect exports to, to increase over the next five years? And fairly consistently, uh, the, the, the sentiment is that they do expect exports to increase over the next five years. And so there's still a feeling that this is going to be resolved, and we, and we are going to in, continue to increase exports. Uh, we also have asked a question uh, related to the trade dispute with China specifically. And the way we phrase this question is, do you think the trade dispute with China will be resolved in a way that benefits U.S. agriculture? Uh, that, the percentage of thought, uh, thought that was a definite yes in March was 77%, so very overwhelmingly thinking that this was, uh, was going to be resolved in our favor in March. In May, uh, the percentage that said yes slipped to 65%. And so it's still uh, a majority uh, think that this is we're going to resolve this in our favor. That percentage has declined, and I, I think that I think that's one of the reasons why uh, this sentiment continues to decline. Uh, if you don't think that's going to be resolved in our favor, uh, then you're, you're thinking that's going to that's going to drag down uh, net returns, specifically for soybeans. So not surprisingly, then um, farmers have indicated they're reluctant to make some major investments in their operations right now. Yeah, that's definitely the case. I mean, now, we started this survey in, in the fall of 2015, and so as you know, uh, that those aren't, those aren't times where we expect to see a lot of it, uh, investment in machinery, machinery equipment and buildings. Uh, that occurred pr- primarily from 2007 to 2014. We had a lot of strength in, in purchases uh, during that time period. And so machinery investment has been down the entire period we've, we've surveyed, but the sentiment really has declined the last couple months, and, and our index related to making large investments in machinery and buildings uh, stand at the lowest level uh, since the history of the survey. 
Uh, and so what that means is, is people are very reluctant uh, to make investments in machinery, equipment, and buildings, uh, given, given the current uh, net return situation and the uncertainty uh, related to where uh, net, return, net returns might be. Now, that's, that's interesting in, in a lot of ways because, you know, since about 2014, we haven't seen as many purchases of machinery. Eventually here, we're going to have to buy back, you know, replace some of the machinery that we bought uh, during that 2007 to 2014 period. And so we're watching that really carefully. Uh, you know, that particular index we watch really, really carefully. But, uh, but, but I think that's consistent, again, with the lower sediment. Uh, people just d- don't think there's going to be enough net return uh, to, to uh, make this year uh, the year where they start replacing some of that equipment. And, Michael, I think something about this year that's different maybe than other years when we've had down cycles, some of the things happening this year, whether it's, um, you know, the flooding and the damage that's been done by that and uh, waiting for trade deals to get done and wondering if uh, trading partners find other partners other than the U.S. to go to first, uh, the concern is some of the things happening this year may have long-term ramifications. Definitely, and, and uh, let's go back to the trade again. Uh, when you have a disruption of trade uh, with any country, one of the things that happens is, is the, your competitors, uh, your overseas competitors that also produce the same crops, start really building their supplies. And, and so even when the, when the trade agreements are reached, you're not necessarily going to go back to the level you were trading at uh, you know, for quite some time. Uh, because because now there's a, there's there's arrangements kind of around you if you will and so let's just look at Brazil you know Brazil's been increasing their their corn and soybean production at a fairly steady rate and and I guarantee you they're con- going to continue to do that as long as we have this trade dispute related to soybeans with China because they see they see that as a huge uh, a huge opportunity for them and so and so as you were saying earlier it, it's it's going to take a while even if we reach a resolution here it's going to take a while uh, to try to get some of that market share back well michael hopefully next month we'll have a little more positive news to uh, talk about well, one uh, of the things that was yeah one of the things that was not included uh, in this month's survey uh... and thanks for that seg- segue is we, we did this this survey took place before the announcement for the market facilitation payment yeah and so we would expect those payments to, to increase optimism at least a little bit uh, in June. So that could help. Yeah. All right. All right, Michael, thank you very much. We'll talk to you next month. Thank you. All right. Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer. Up next, Paul Blyberg with the National Milk Producers Federation. Stay with us here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. 
Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private Healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is 35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612, 800-664-2612. Hi, I'm George Foreman. Do you have an idea for a new product or invention? People ask me all the time, George, how do I get my idea in front of companies? How do I get a patent? What do I do next? Do you have the same questions? I'll tell you like I'll tell them all. Call my friends at InventHelp. To get your free inventor's information, call 1-800-352-0432. That's 1-800-352-0432. I believe every inventor deserves the opportunity to step into the ring and take their best shot. Put InventHelp in your corner. Want to reduce your risk of heart disease, diabetes, and stroke? Simple. Eat right. This is registered dietitian nutritionist Melissa Dobbins. A healthy diet can mean a healthier you. So eat a variety of proteins each week. Seafood, lean meat, poultry, beans, and nuts. Fill half your plate with fruits and vegetables at every meal. Choose foods that are lower in calories, fat, and sodium. Limit your alcohol and maintain a healthy weight. Let a registered dietitian nutritionist help you achieve your goals. Find one near you at eatright.org. Recently on Adams on Agriculture... So we just talked with Nick Giordano with the National Pork Producers Council. Obviously, they are ecstatic that the uh, metal tariffs on Canada and Mexico have been lifted. We can talk about that as well with Colin Woodall for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Colin, this was looked at as a a must-have to get USMCA moving forward, and I know you at NCBA are happy to have uh, those tariffs lifted. We're extremely happy to see these tariffs lifted. Now, we're in a little bit different shape from our friends in the pork industry because they were really getting hammered with the tariffs. But we were also, though, however, really pushing to try to get these tariffs taken down because we knew if we wanted to have a chance of getting a vote on USMCA, the tariffs were going to have to be a part of this deal. So the fact that this is done uh, earlier is, I think, going to be overall very beneficial to uh, the process of getting a vote and finally passing USMCA and putting this chapter behind us. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination our honesty, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise, we'll be there. 
when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Milk in schools, that was always a given, right? Uh, didn't have to really worry about that. Well, now there's it's it's complicated and challenging in, in some cases. And here to talk about it is the Vice President of Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation, Paul Blyberg. Paul, it's it's not a given. It's not as simple as it used to be. We have uh, the debate over flavored milk and whether it should be in allowed in schools or not. So it, it's it's kind of become complicated. Uh, there is some legislation proposed here. I know you're supporting. Tell us about it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on again, Mike. And uh, yes, yesterday we had some legislation introduced in the House of Representatives on a bipartisan basis called the School Milk Nutrition Act of 2019. And this legislation was introduced by two members of Congress on the House Education and Labor Committee, which has jurisdiction over child nutrition programs and milk and nutrition standards and things like that. And the bill quite simply codifies into law current uh, options that students have in the lunchtime, which include low-fat and fat-free milks, but in particular low-fat flavored milk and 1% flavored milk, as you said. And we think this is a very important measure to build on the successful rulemaking from last fall that reinstated 1% flavored milk into schools, but essentially to codify it into law so that we have certainty and don't have to worry about it being reversed in the future. So this bill would permit individual school districts to determine on their own which milk varieties to offer their students, right? That's absolutely correct, and we think this is really important because there was a widely recognized decline in the amount of milk that kids were drinking in school, and it coincided with a 2012 regulatory change that actually at the time barred low-fat flavored milk from school lunches and breakfasts and other school food options, and a number of different studies found as high as a 7% drop in the amount of milk that kids were drinking in school between the 2011-2012 school year and the you know 2015-2016 school year, and USDA's Food and Nutrition Service has also indicated that milk consumption has declined over the years. So this is an important bill to make sure that we don't have a decline like that again, that we don't lose a generation of milk drinkers. And I think everybody listening on the phone knows that dairy products play a huge role in kids' diets. It's a huge source of different nutrients. Calcium, potassium, vitamin D are all found in milk and uh, provides other health benefits as well. And we want to make sure that we're going to be offering milk in schools that kids will drink. And that's uh, where the flavor issue really comes in. Well, we had this debate, and obviously there was a concern over childhood obesity and and the the sugar levels uh, in in flavored milk but when you're talking about a one percent flavored milk and if that helps get kids to drink milk when otherwise they might not and if they don't then they lose all these other health benefits i mean it to me it just made sense to 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 allow the uh the one percent flavored milk And it does to us, too, and we point out that 1% flavored milk typically contains less sugar, actually, than the cap for sugar in milk that's recommended by the National Academy of Science. And not only that, we did a survey of over 300 schools that offered flavored milk in the 2017 and 2018 school year. They were able to do 
that on account of some kind of limited waivers. And the survey that was conducted found that of those over 300 schools, 82% of them found that it was easy or very easy to accommodate 1% flavored milk in their calorie cap. So you look at the, the math, most flavored milk offering in schools falls well below the recommendation that you get, you know, 10% of your total calories in a day from added sugar. So we think the, the science and the numbers are very much on our side here. Of course, another thing that has changed, the drink options that are available to students now in schools, uh, uh, there's more out there, right? That's absolutely true, and we want to make sure that kids continue to have milk as an option in the lunch line, but as I said earlier, an option that we know they're going to consume. Mm -hmm. All right, so this legislation that has been introduced, uh, is there good support for it, bipartisan support? Yes, actually, the bill was introduced yesterday. It had over 25 uh, bipartisan co-sponsors, uh, many members in both parties, including multiple members in both parties who actually also serve on the Education and Labor Committee. The two lead sponsors were uh, Congressman Joe Courtney from Connecticut on the Democratic side and Congressman G.T. Thompson from Pennsylvania on the Republican side. They are both senior members of that committee, and a number, and a number of their colleagues on and off the committee have joined them, and we expect that many more will in the coming weeks as well. And that's a very important signifier for us because because in the next two in this two year Congress that we're in right now, there's an expectation that the child nutrition programs will be reauthorized and that may give us an opportunity to take the language of this bill and try to get it included in that broader reauthorization. Well you can't take anything for granted in Congress these days, uh, so you're optimistic about it passing? Well, I think we're hopeful that if a I think we're hopeful that if a child nutrition bill moves forward that we have an opportunity to make some progress here. It's hard to know exactly whether or not the broader legislation will move forward to your point. Uh it, not a lot is moving right now, but I think if a bill moves forward, we'll be pushing very hard to get this included in that larger bill. I think I would think the fact that you still are letting local school districts uh have a say in this, that makes it even more appealing, I would think. I think it does, too. And the other thing that makes it appealing to a lot of folks is that low-fat flavored milk is consistent with the current dietary guidelines. And the other provision of the legislation actually restates current law in that milk varieties offered in schools must be consistent with the most recent dietary guidelines. And obviously, there's a lot of emerging science out there about higher-fat varieties and the benefits of higher-fat varieties of dairy and possibly delinking the idea that, you know, higher-fat dairy is connected to cardiovascular disease. And we're very supportive of moving further in that direction, obviously. Uh, but the dietary guidelines are being rewritten as we speak for 2020 since they're done on an every five-year basis, and so we may have an opportunity to move forward there. But at a minimum, uh, the proposal we've, that's put forward right now on 1% flavored milk is fully in alignment with the existing dietary guidelines already. And the numbers don't lie. The flavored milk is popular with the kids. Uh, it gets them to drink milk. It absolutely does. All right. Paul, thank you for the update, and uh, we'll be watching this closely. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Paul Bleiberg, he is Vice President, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. All right, that's going to wrap it up for today. Tomorrow we'll continue to keep an update, uh, keep an eye on the planning progress and uh, uh, where we're at, how much is getting done and where, and also, of course, so the flood conditions uh, around the country as well. And um, the ongoing and ever-growing controversy over moving to federal research agencies and it looks like we're about to get an announcement soon on where those new locations may be there are a lot of people upset about uh, moving them out of washington dc we'll take a closer look at that issue and that that controversy coming up tomorrow hope you'll join us right here on aoa adams on agriculture 